and welcome to episode 35 of the More Than Books podcast. Pretty sure that's what we're up to. I'm glad you checked them before. I might double check real quick. Okay. <laughs> I was going to say, I have no idea. If that was up to me, I wouldn't know what episode we're on. We are on episode 35 of the Excellent. More Than Books podcast. Uh, as usual, I'm your host, Joel, with my co-host, Colin. Yep. Hello. Hello. Um, Interesting topic today. Uh, We're going to be talking about um, some unique digital collections that you can browse online, as well as some unique and, uh, well, interesting items um, in some collections online. Yeah. We've touched on, uh, I've touched on some of these before in the past. Um, First up, we're going to be talking a little bit about uh, the Internet Archive, our great host for this very podcast. Um, Yeah, that's right. The Internet Archive is great. We we can never stop talking about how great the Internet <laughs> Archive is. In the past, uh, I there was a podcast solely dedicated to the Internet Archive. Um, if you haven't listened to that, you should give it a listen. It'll go a little bit more in depth about the history of the project as well as uh, everything that is available out there. And there mm-hmm. is a lot available. The Internet Arcade is definitely worth checking out on the Internet Archive. If you want to find old versions of uh, like old arcade games from the 1970s, 80s, 90s, mm-hmm. um, playable online, check out the Internet Arcade on the Internet Archive. <laughs> just, uh, just don't do it at work. <laughs> yeah, you'll go down a <laughs> hole and you will um, lose hours. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I think this originally started as a project just to make sure that the the code for a lot of those old games weren't completely lost because that is a huge issue with uh, with old video games is just the code being lost either like the disc that it's stored oh, on yeah. like the original code you know, the company that owns owns the game or created the game goes out of business and the code just disappears and well, the only thing that works is old copies of it. And yeah, and in some cases the company's still around and the game's not even that old and they've still managed to lose the, the source code for it. <laughs> the, uh, uh, a, a popular theory right now is on the internet is speculating that uh, Square Enix uh, lost the source code for Final Fantasy VIII, a relatively recent game <laughs> in the grand scheme of things, but it's the only one of the Final Fantasy games that has not gotten republished recently. So yeah, that came out in 1998 or 1999, yeah, late sometime 90s. around there. Um, yeah. I had it on PlayStation, uh, yep. <laughs> and I have noticed, you know, they're prepping the the Nintendo Switch versions of a lot of those old Final Fantasy games mm. now. So Final Fantasy VII and and nine and ten and right. ten two and and no eight. Yeah, and no eight. They just happen to <laughs> skip eight for some reason. Yep. So I think that that, that could be, uh, that, that makes sense. That <laughs> yep. maybe they lost the code. Now, really? that game might be a bit more complicated than the kind of the games yes. that are available to play on the internet arcade, um, but they have a lot of the old classics like Joust and Outrun, which is the, the old race car game from Sega. Oh, yeah. And uh, Defender, just all of these very, very well, classic <laughs> You can play In Q-Bird. most cases. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of them are classic. Some of them, you know, they don't hold up. Some of them don't hold up that well. But mm-hmm. uh, the only other way to, to play them, I mean, if you don't want to go out to, like, the latest uh, arcade or the barcade that um, is opening, then you can play them on, in your browser. And it's just a great collection. And most of them work pretty well. 
Like yeah. every once in a while, you might have to swap browsers around a little bit to figure out a, a good combination that works. But <laughs> yeah, no, it's an awesome collection. Yeah. I mean, and, and other than that, they have an entire software collection. So the Internet Arcade is just mm-hmm. one piece of their, their software collection. Right. They have <laughs> a lot of old MS-DOS games that, you know, aren't part of the Internet Arcade, but they have them backed up and... Squirreled away. Yeah. 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 <laughs> So they have a whole uh, a whole CD-ROM software <laughs> ri- uh, library as I well. Need, I need to look at those MS DOS games sometime because that was that was you know my first computer ran on MS DOS. It wasn't a Windows computer, and I definitely have fond memories of a lot of the games that were on it. Yeah, you can play some old uh, well Oregon Trail. That's probably yeah, the most famous one. Exactly. <laughs> that's exactly yeah. what I'm thinking of. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that is just one piece of the Internet Archive that is definitely worth checking out. Yeah. Is uh, anything else that you can think to add? Oh, to the Internet Archive? I mean, we could make multiple episodes about the Internet Archive, honestly. I use it a lot to read old books or to skim through old books. But obviously, yeah, the arcade is killer as well. So. <laughs> yeah, they have um, just a quick run-through of some of the other things that the, the Internet Archive has. Is They have a whole or not the Internet Archive has, is they have a whole old uh, video library, including, Mm -hmm. um, like, old news clips. Um, They have an actual whole collection on just 9-11, which is um, archived all these these old news clips from 9-11. They have a TV news archive. They have what I think is actually really fun is an archive of old advertisements, uh, old, old commercials and things like that. And that's just a, a hole you can go down if you want to, <laughs> you know, watch some old commercials from, from growing up. I use YouTube for that a lot, but uh, the Internet Archive has the actual rights to it. I know YouTube people just sometimes upload rip things whatever. and upload them. <laughs> so kind of a copyright black hole. Um, mm-hmm. But I did, I, I think it was just last year around Halloween, um, I was watching some videos on YouTube and then it recommended all of these uh, like Halloween themed ads like there was a whole playlist of like an hour and a half long um, (laughs) an hour and a half long video of just like ads from the 70s 80s and 90s about uh, like Halloween costumes like those special McDonald's ads with like the McNuggets with the vampire teeth (laughs) right just a whole huge playlist of all of these old ads and it was it was a very fun kind of black hole to go back down. Um, <laughs> I, yeah. I, I always remember, you know, you'd get those like VHSs that had like the first like one or two episodes of some cartoon on it and it would keep the ads yeah. between the episodes or during the episode breaks <laughs> and just rediscovering those ads is a complete joy. It's almost like the, the best way to kind of get a snapshot of culture in a time period. It kind of is. Uh, and just seeing like... I mean, I grew up in the early 90s for the most part, and seeing, like, ads from that time period is always just really weird. (laughs) Yep. Um, My friend uh, got gifted to him an entire, like, VHS collection of old Mystery Science Theater movies. Oh, okay. And they were all taped off the TV. (laughs) And and so he's been digitizing them uh, with the ads. He's doing two versions, one with the ads in and one with the ads out. That's awesome. <laughs> and, That's the way to do it. And it's actually almost more enjoyable with the ads with the in because <laughs> they are from the original run from the from the 90s. And isn't that funny how we all like, you know, are watching Netflix and stuff now and we're stripping all the ads out because we can't stand them. They annoy <laughs> us so much. And now we look back with nostalgia <laughs> on these ads that we saw dozens if not hundreds of times when we were kids. 
So that's uh, some of the fun things you can find on uh, the Internet Archive. Plus this podcast, as Joel already mentioned. Yeah. <laughs> so, what uh, do you have anything you'd like to spotlight, Colin? I mean, yeah. Um, <laughs> because I'm me, of course, I found a collection of playing cards that have been digitized. That is pretty great. Uh, it's the Carry Collection of playing cards, uh, which is actually at Yale. They hold uh, like almost 3,000 decks of cards and hundreds of uncut sheets. Okay, um, so like the original like printing before they right been before they were cut and turned into decks. Into cards, yeah. yeah, and oh. also uh, like about 150 like wood blocks that they would have actually printed old cards with. Unfortunately, it's not one of the it's not one of these databases where you can go on and look at an entire deck of cards. They haven't scanned every single last card and every single last deck that they have. But you can search it, and you can find all sorts of fascinating stuff. A lot of stuff that, um, a lot of designs and suits that aren't in use anymore, or if they are in use, there's maybe like one company in the world that prints one deck that has that particular like suit symbol in it still, something like that. <laughs> that sounds pretty awesome. It's great. <laughs> it's it's a site that I have relied on a lot. Do you know how they like started that collection at all? I just used a to. big donation that they just got. I believe it started and... <laughs> with a big donation, and then they've kind of relied on big donations ever since. And they, I know they try to keep some kind of balance between people that collect like standard decks of playing cards and people that collect quote unquote like fancy uh, decks of playing cards that you know usually are the creation of some artist and they're printed in limited runs that sort of thing. But they have cards going all the way back to at least the 15th century and even older. One of the, if not the, oldest tarot decks in existence uh, is housed there, and most people just call it the uh, Carrie Yale tarot deck. Do they have it uh, completely digitized where you can actually look at it, or is it just... Uh, They have good chunks of it digitized, to my memory. Uh, That deck, however, has been reproduced dozens of times over the Uh, years, uh, so consumers can go out and buy like pretty nice quality versions of it if they actually want to hold it in their hands and make use of it. No, it's a fascinating collection, and what's great about it is it's not just like European playing cards, but they've also got uh, Asian playing cards, playing cards from the Middle East, basically from every corner of the globe. Um, I might have to check that out. I was uh, I was thinking about um, I was I'm always trying to come up with tattoo ideas because it's something that I've kind of wanted but have <laughs> never been able to actually focus on and pick a design that sure. I would want on me forever that I feel like I'm not going to hate in five years, right? Ten That's years, twenty years. And lately I had been kind of running around with ideas like with like tarot card designs and things like that, Um, like some of the symbolism off of it. Um, So maybe I'll have to browse the uh, the collection and just think about uh, some of the art styles and some of the things that uh, maybe would work. But chances are it's going to be something that I'm just thinking about forever (laughs) and never actually do. Which better safe than sorry, right? Yeah. One that I found, um, Stanford Library, uh, has the Apple Computer Collection. Uh-huh. And, you know, Stanford being in the middle of uh, the Bay Area, Silicon Valley, it's very much, you know, tied to the, the history of that area. So uh, they have a collection of old Apple computers, as well as corporate history, uh, marketing materials, um Apple Media and Digital Collections. Uh, they have probably, you know, everything you can think of if you want to write a history <laughs> on Apple. 
So they have an electronic resource, CD-ROMs 1988 to 1993 (laughs) is one of the the collections they have. Photography collection 1985 to 2008, which would be uh, photographic materials such as prints, contact sheets, negatives, and slides from um, award-winning photographer Douglas Menuez. Fifty thousand images wow. of visual documentation of um, important Silicon Valley companies, um, and he worked at Apple and and Next, which was another company. Another was, yeah. did, did Jobs oh. have anything to do with Next? I don't remember. I think he might have. I think he did. Yeah, <laughs> it was a, a software company founded by, um, well, co-founded by Steve Jobs. So. Yeah. Yeah. So the the corporate history stuff sounds pretty interesting too. Yeah. Um, but they have Apple Computer Ephemera, 1978 to 2004. So <laughs> annual reports, internal communications, catalogs, manuals, corporate memorabilia, cassette tapes, like wow. anything that had <laughs> Apple's logo thrown on it for a marketing purpose back sure. in the 70s and 80s that they managed to save. Um, they probably have a copy of it. Building plans for the Apple campus uh, in Cupertino, 1991. I love stuff like that because... Jobs was so detail oriented that like he would put his fingers into everything, not just Apple products, but even like their architectural design. Oh, so yeah. like he would <laughs> figure out like the staircase and how he wanted that to like look inside like the Pixar building and what the angle was going to be and all that kind of stuff. They do have a lot of this stuff digitized, but a lot of this stuff is just archival materials that you would have to go there to sure. actually access and look at or request. But they do have some of it digitized. So it's more of an index, probably. Yeah, yeah. They do have a link off to the uh, the Internet Archive, which I think is kind of interesting. Yeah, that is one thing that we <laughs> should have said when we talk about the Internet Archive. Yeah. But a lot of these um, universities and museums and everything, they do upload material to the Internet Archive as well. Yeah. So they have the, the Lisa demo, which is an early personal computer oh, yeah. developed by Apple. It's a video cassette, it looks like, that was um, from 1983, <laughs> 1982 or 1983. Um, early advertisement for a personal computer, or early demo of sure. the capabilities of the Apple Lisa personal computer. Yeah, so that's <laughs> uh, indexed at uh, Stanford and stored on the Internet Archive. Yeah. <laughs> So yeah, that's one uh, interesting collection that uh, we found when we were looking at uh, digital collections. Your turn. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you probably got to help me talk about this one because one thing that I, I, I don't think a lot of people realize is that um, Trinity College in Dublin has actually digitized the Book of Kells and you can flip through the entire thing online in pretty high resolution. Book of Kells, like a, a 800 A.D., it's a very Usually, old illuminated manuscript. Yeah, um, it's completely the, the the art in it is just amazing to even look at. Yeah, it, the the book itself is just the the gospels um, mm-hmm. from the New Testament in in Latin, but the art it's every single page is like unique art on it. Right. Um, yeah, the lettering, everything is just. Uh, so I I got a chance to see it in person, and it really is something to behold when you look at it. Because <laughs> it's it's visually overwhelming just looking at it on a monitor screen. You can keep zooming in and zooming in and zooming in and seeing all these intricate little details. It's just like a multi. I mean, it's a two D image, yeah. but all of the art in it is so multi layered. <laughs> so I can only imagine that seeing it in person in the flesh would just be even more overwhelming and you know when you see it in person i mean they don't 
obviously you can't flip through right. it. Yeah, so it's they have it just open. You can um, see it. You can a couple see, pages. Yeah, or you can see it, and they have some some pages on display. Sure. Um, yeah, <laughs> it's worth seeing. Um, but if you want to see the whole thing, the best way to do it is look at their completely scanned, digitized uh, image online. Yeah, and we're going to be providing links for all this stuff, of course. Yes. Yeah in the uh, show notes so you can but follow along. I do highly to. recommend going to the Trinity, the old Trinity College Library um, in Dublin um, on campus. It's an amazing library, one of the coolest libraries I've ever been in. They had a, a display of like Oscar Wilde um, handwritten letters that oh, I saw in there, cool. which was really cool. Yeah. Uh, and busts of philosophers and Irish writers. And I, I suspect that a lot of this stuff also is online probably not all of it but a lot of it um they do have a very 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 large uh digital collection while we're on the topic of unique kind of items in in collections uh i'm not going to really point out a specific collection but there is one thing that i wanted to talk about today <laughs> um yep i know what it is yeah we're going to be talking about anthropodermic bibliopagy anthropodermic bibliopagy basically is the practice of binding books in human skin. Yep. This is actually more myth than fact um, in history. Uh, there are books bound in human skin. It does exist. Um, but we're not going to find some evil dead Necronomicon, probably, uh, <laughs> probably most not. of the time. A lot of times it's like a, a, a person that was executed for some reason, and the book that they make of the skin has something to do with the person. Or Sure. Yeah. There's some weird cases out there. Um, so there is a anthropodermic book project right now, well, going on, uh, that uh, they're examining all these books that claim or were supposed to have anthropodermic mm. bindings. Um, so there is, I guess, 49 known books um, in existence that are supposed to have anthropodermic bindings, huh. um, 18 of which have been confirmed as human and 12 have been demonstrated to be animal leather and then the rest haven't been examined. There are cases out there that they have proven. Um, and one of which I will have a link to, it's in the Surgeon's Hall Museum in Edinburgh, Scotland. Uh, it's a book bound in the skin of William Burke, who was a murderer that was mm -hmm. tried and executed. Uh, the actual item itself you can see images of it. Uh, they have the outside of it scanned. Um, there was another one that is on display at the Mutter Museum in Pennsylvania, which I really want to go to. The Mutter Museum is, um, let me try to find the actual full name of it, but I know it's an old medical museum. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's connected to uh, the Mutter Museum of the College of Physicians of Philadelphia. Uh, founded in 1858, so it's been open for a long time. But this museum just has weird medical specimens of everything you can think of. Um, <laughs> anatomical and pathological specimens, models, antique medical equipment, oh, some of the sure. weirdest, like, torture-looking devices you can uh, ever think of. So the Mutter Museum has an anthropodermic book um, it was partially bound in the skin taken from the thigh of Mary Lynch, an Irish immigrant who died in the almshouse at Philadelphia General Hospital in 1869. It's an interesting um, case in that uh, the book itself is called Speculations on the Mode and Appearance of Impregnation in the Human Female, which uh -huh. is 
it has theories surrounding conception in the late 18th century. So it's like a medical book about theories around pregnancy or how, sure. how life is formed. I don't, I have no idea why this book was uh, partially bound in the uh, skin of Mary Lynch. Yeah, that's weird. Uh, it's very <laughs> weird. Uh, yeah, but uh, the book was from the year 1789. It's in their, uh, in their library or in their collection. So we can do a whole uh, podcast probably on fun <laughs> and interesting museums like the Mutter Museum. Yeah, I mean, if you just Google pictures of the place... It looks like a horror show. I basically. know. I really want to go. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it is really intriguing. It is really cool. Just you know, they it's have a like, very morbid place, probably. But so probably not. Yeah, probably not a. It's not a for, place everybody. for everybody. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I think it'd be fun to explore. It'd probably I, give me nightmares. I think honestly, for the for but... the morbidly curious, <laughs> probably a pretty great place. And I think. That's just uh, two items from two different um, archives and museums that are examples of anthropodermic bibliopagy. It's a real thing, sort of. Apparently, medical libraries get all the good stuff because one of my favorite, like, online books, one of my favorite digitized books is from another medical library called uh, the Wellcome Library. And... um, Welcome Library is kind of like a... It's a history of medicine library, basically. That's the the intent of the collection. Okay. So, so they've got a book rather alarmingly titled Touch Me Not. <laughs> <laughs> and insofar as a kind of like an obscure, one-of-a-kind Austrian manuscript from the 18th century can go viral, this one did a few years back just because the images in it are so vibrant and psychedelic and disturbing and okay interesting. <laughs> i saw images of it everywhere a few years ago i had to know what it was <laughs> i found it on welcome library site because they digitized the whole thing and it's all in a different language i want to say it's a mix of latin and german but basically it's it's what you would call a you know like a grimoire where it's like instructions on summoning spirits and how to deal with them and that sort of thing but it's lavishly illustrated with all of these very uh, disturbing but kind of cartoonish and slightly goofy-looking demons. Okay. Um, n- again, not for everybody. Uh, some of the images are pretty disturbing. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I think... I don't know. I just... I love old horror movies and anything yes. that involves, like, this evil book that's either bound in human <laughs> flesh or, like, a... Uh, you, you mentioned contains the, magic spells to sure. <laughs> yeah, you, you mentioned the Necronomicon a little yeah. while ago. I mean, this is kind of what this is like, and it is a one of a kind item. Okay. Uh, it's all handwritten. It's all original art, and it was never reproduced uh, until just recently. A company did put out physical copies of it, and I managed to pick one up, uh, which is awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I love that I saw this thing on the internet years ago. Fell in love with it so to speak. And then you and got then a nice artsy. A, yeah, and I was able to get a nice physical copy of it that had been translated into English as well. Oh, and cool. it's, I completely derailed the board game night once with it. <laughs> I took it off the shelf to show to someone, and then it just got passed around for a couple of hours as everyone was just marveling over the images in it. But what a book. <laughs> I need to look at that. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's really cool. You, you will lose... At least a half hour of your life just flipping through the pages and seeing all the artwork in it. <laughs> yeah, it's actually, it's cataloged under a different name, a, a very Latin name. 
but the book internally refers to itself as Touch Me Not. Uh, Compendium Varicium Totius Artius. There you go, that's the one. (laughs) Magicae Systemeste Per Celebrimos Artius Hujos Magistros. Something like that. Something like that. (laughs) Yeah. Compendium of, I think, rare magic is basically what it boils down to. But good stuff. Nice. That sounds fun. It's super fun. <laughs> Again, not for everybody. Probably some uh, not safe for work images in it. So uh, wait until you're home to flip through it. But. I mean, as not safe for work as a 200 plus year old book can be. <laughs> right. 300 year old book. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Well, the next uh, next topic is going to be a little more fun. Yeah, let's um, get out of the gonna, darkness. It's going to bring me back to my childhood. Um, there's a website called Brickset. Mm-hmm. which is a Lego set guide a database. Uh, they have every set from like 2015 on, but they have older sets listed as like older sets as well. Um, right. They have every like Lego brick and its accession number. So the, the number assigned to that brick that, mm-hmm. you know, so <laughs> it has uh, scanned PDFs of many, Probably not all of them, but uh, many, many of the instructions for old Lego sets um, yeah. and current Lego sets. It has you can like set up your own account in it and like tag all the sets you have and kind of create your collection in the website, um, which is kind of cool. But just being able to go back and browse, you can browse the database by by sets, by minifigs, which are the little Lego guys, right? Uh, by the part itself or by colors. <laughs> So let me just jump back into sets. You can also browse by year and instructions and things like that. So they have quite a, a in-depth, diverse, uh, yeah, it sounds database pretty robust, of yeah. Lego sets. Yeah. <laughs> and you sent me this link, and I was overjoyed because yeah. <laughs> I bookmarked it immediately because I've been wanting something like this because I, you know, I remember all these Lego sets I had as a kid or that my cousins or my friends had, and I don't remember what any of them were. Or what their numbers were, or what years they came out. But with a tool like this, maybe I can find them again, and probably not buy them because Lego appreciates in value like you wouldn't believe. Yeah, this uh, <laughs> the earliest sets that they have listed are from 1949 and 1950. Wow. Yeah, it looks like those early ones are just the the 1949 set is just 700 automatic binding bricks. It's just a box of old school square Lego bricks in different colors. <laughs> that is really cool. 1949 yeah. is the oldest one they have in the uh, in it. But let me go back to my childhood real quick. <laughs> Let's check out like 1989 real quick. See if I can remember any of these. <laughs> I would have been pretty young then. Yeah, no, I would have been young too, but it didn't stop me from lusting after all. So. Yeah, okay. I was hoping I'd find... The old, I had this old Lego space shuttle, which was my favorite Lego set ever. Just, I played with it so much. <laughs> and I see some that are similar to it, yeah. but I haven't seen that one yet. But I don't know exactly the year, so it might have been after 1989, could have been 1992 sure. for all I know. But, mm-hmm. but yeah. You can go back, browse by year, you can browse by theme, so if you want to find, you know, all those pirate sets from the early 90s, which I loved also, um, yes. you can find those. <laughs> the pirate ones, weren't there some, like... The pirate ones, the castle ones. Yeah, the castle The castle ones, ones were, were great. great. I had, like, a Robin Hood set. Yeah. Um, those were so yeah. awesome. And then I, there were some, like... Uh, like, in the mid-90s, I started getting, like, the western sets, and... 
Yeah, there was some big like sci-fi thing that they did too, where you'd have like uh, moon buggies and stuff like that. Yeah, like, I know. Like there was like moon base. Um, yeah. Stuff space. Like, they just have space as a space as a theme. Maybe that. Maybe that's the theme we're looking at. Yeah, maybe. But man, Lego was so good and continues to be. So yeah. Good. I mean, I one thing I I don't like about modern Legos is just I feel like they are too much with the um, brands or whatever's popular. Like everything's oh, a sure. Star Wars or Harry Potter or yeah. whatever Lego, and there's less just of the fun themes than there used to be. Well. Interestingly, what they've done is I feel like a lot of those those kind of brand deals are kind of like aiming at the kids, and then the more kind of like generic themed Legos are then aiming at the adult audience, which unfortunately means that they're also more expensive because they're kind of shooting more for Lego hobbyists rather than for kids. Yeah, yeah, it's funny just kind of browsing through these. I recognize, I'm starting to recognize some of these. Uh, I mean, there's some real old ones that go back to the 70s, like the old space spaceman stuff but the, oh, yeah. the newer ones from the yeah. 90s um or, like, that's not new anymore dang <laughs> <laughs> the ones from my childhood <laughs> yep. are also in here and they have the ice planet sets i remember those yep those yeah pretty cool yeah so full lego database super cool yeah. you can browse yeah. it by it's a, me knowing about this is yeah. a bit of a problem because <laughs> I'm probably going to spend an entire day this weekend just looking through it. So. You can you can look it up, look it up, and they have um, links to buy this set at eBay. You, like you can click a link and it'll search for it on eBay. That'll just be depressing because <laughs> I'll find it and, and then it'll, it'll be, be like untold hundreds. Yeah. yeah, but just uh, the fact that they have individual bricks indexed, they have individual yeah, sets that's indexed. Really cool. Because there's so many Lego yeah. sites out there where you can go and search for just individual bricks by part number. <laughs> so if you want to either replace bricks that you've lost or recreate an old set from scratch or um, do a, um, what are they called? My own creations where people <laughs> upload their own uh, sets that they've built and designed. So having a, something like this, we can go back and actually see what part numbers were part of what sets is awesome. Yeah. So that's brick set. Check it out. It's yeah, a really database cool. of Lego bricks and Lego sets. <laughs> <laughs> really cool. What do you have next? Uh, well, kind of the last thing for me, I feel like I've talked a lot about old books, and that's going to continue to be the theme, because I really like old books, it turns out. <laughs> um, there's a rather famous book called the Nuremberg Chronicle. It came out in uh, 1493 in a Latin and a German edition, and it was basically an early encyclopedia, or an early history of the world might be more accurate. It's kind of a paraphrase of... Uh, the Bible first, and then after that it goes from like the, the death of Jesus up until the modern time. Well, I say modern time. Up until the time the book was published, it gives kind of a rough history of Europe, uh, especially of the major uh, cities and towns, and then like the last bit of the book is devoted to speculations about the end of the world. <laughs> um, Sounds fun. Yeah. Uh, when was it published? 1493. Okay. okay. Uh, but what makes it a notable book is how heavily illustrated it is. Uh, there's something like over 600 unique woodcuts in it. It's one of the first books to really kind of combine in a relatively modern looking way, still, I think, text with illustrations. And there's about 700 copies of it that have survived into the modern day. Uh, the one that we're going to link to is a Latin language version of the text. But the one I'm going to link to 
also includes a complete English translation of the entire thing, which is okay. pretty cool. But honestly, I think the main appeal of the book is the illustrations. And some of them have been colorized after publication, because of course, during the printing press days, they were all black and white. Uh, but many, many, many copies were colorized, and the one I'm going to link to has also been colorized. It's, I don't think it's boring. I think it's great. I feel like people think maybe <laughs> old books are boring. But, well, I mean, um, I, especially if they um, have really awesome unique and cool illustrations. Yeah. Like, I mean, I can look at a Latin book and won't know what it's saying. <laughs> but uh, if it looks really pretty, it's totally worth it. Right. <laughs> and the way that it, in some ways, it kind of almost reminds me of, like, comic books, too. Not because it's got, like, panels and stuff, but certainly it's got illustrations that are meant to be looked at in like a sequential way uh so it'll like have a little illustration accompanying like the book of genesis or whatever uh, or it's paraphrase of the book of genesis so it's like here's what the world looked like on day one here's what it looked like on day two day three so on and so forth it's it's really cool okay. a really cool kind of early-ish uh example of like really awesome book design uh, really planning out the text and how the text is going to pair with the illustrations. In numerous places, the text refers to the illustrations as well, which hadn't really been done a whole lot up to that point. Previously, illustrations were more of just like a decorative thing. Yeah, that sounds really cool. It, it's really cool. And Do you a, know where it originated from? Or uh, Nuremberg. Actually, Nuremberg. Oh, the, <laughs> okay, that makes the name sense. of the book proper yeah. is the Book of Chronicles, but uh, in English, we usually just call it... Uh, um, the Nuremberg Chronicle. So okay, yep, that's cool. I think it was probably also among one of the first books to have been kind of published simultaneously in more than one language as well. So, do you know? So it has like a, a history of Europe, you know, dating yeah. back fifteen hundred years or fourteen hundred years, right? And granted, some of it's pretty ahistorical. Yeah, that's what I was going <laughs> to ask. I'm like, do we know how accurate it is? Once it starts getting into the city stuff, like, it'll just talk about a city for a few pages. So it'll have, like, a nice, like, two-page woodcut uh, illustration of Florence, and it'll kind of tell you about Florence. <laughs> from, yeah, that's kind of cool. Yeah, going yeah. back a few centuries up to the present day. And it does that for quite a few major European cities that are, of course, still around. One thing that it does that is a, a little comical is even though there are hundreds of unique woodcut illustrations in it, there are... All told, thousands of illustrations in the book, or at least over a thousand. So it does repeat a few of the images. And it's really funny to note that it especially happens when it's depicting a battle scene. Yeah. So it'll give you a battle scene, and then the caption will say, this is the battle of such and such that took place such and such date. And then, and then the a few hundred image. pages later, it'll be the exact same image, just with a different caption. It's pretty yeah. funny. <laughs> nice. Uh, well, you know, it takes a lot of time to make those. <laughs> exactly, yeah. <laughs> kind, of, kind of an early example of a uh, uh, cut and paste i guess yeah <laughs> but that sounds pretty cool I'd, I'd be most interested in those like just looking at the history of a place exactly from you know a historical from perspective, a historical like, perspective. Yeah. yeah that's really fascinating well while we're kind of on the topic of uh europe then or european history mm -hmm. um the uh europeana collections website um is really cool um it's uh basically they have a whole database and website of uh, art, artifacts, books, films, and music from uh, basically a bunch of European museums, kind of collaborate museums, galleries, libraries, and archives kind of collaborated on this website. Right. 
and it's kind of a showcase of European history. Um, yeah. Yeah. So they have individual collections um, on archaeology, manuscripts, fashion, art, uh, music, the, natural history, sports. <laughs> like, but the fashion one is really cool. Yeah, yeah. If you want to like look back and be able to see like examples of fashion from you know from modern designers all the way back to I don't know how far yeah. back it goes, but it goes back. Pretty it goes far. back a long way. You know, want to see old peasant clothing and <laughs> things like that to <laughs> modern Parisian uh, designers. It's all all in there, and you can kind of browse it by the different types of material, which is kind of cool. So like cotton or wool or. Um, or the technique. So if it's embroidered or weaved or knitted, you can kind of like look through their collections that way. Very interesting website. Yeah. Um, I haven't gone through everything on here because there's just way too much. Um, but yeah, it's like tens of thousands, probably honestly millions of yeah. digital <laughs> items on that website. Slight disclaimers that I'm not quite sure how curated some of it is. Sometimes you will find kind of weird things that just kind of seem like they were uploaded by a random person who just wanted to upload something weird, like pictures of like fridge magnets and stuff. Yeah, they have a collection <laughs> of free-to-use images, and yeah. I think that that might be kind of just a fair use just exactly. archive that they threw up there, yeah, and I feel like just kind of anybody stuff. can yeah. put anything in it. <laughs> and a lot of it's weird or poor yeah. quality. or Yeah, so yeah. that's, I mean... Not super useful, um, but uh, looking through like the maps and manuscripts yeah. collections, like That's you're not going to find at. that kind of stuff in there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, no, go to those. Go to those subject collections. That's where all the good yeah. stuff is on that site. And I, I had clicked on the music collection, and this looked kind of cool. They have um, a lot of like recordings and um, sheet mm -hmm. music, and that's really uh, cool. All sorts of things in there. Yeah. Over 340,000 recording, sheet music, instruments, and music-related collections from wow. European audiovisual archives, libraries, and museums. So check it out if you're into old composers and things like that. <laughs> or old music. Yeah. Probably old European folk music. That's Yeah, there's probably a lot of that in yeah, there. There probably is a lot of that in there. I'm hoping. Yeah. That's what I think I would be interested in the most. So. <laughs> So that's the Europeana collections, and they have the site in multiple languages, so many, many languages. Obviously, it's Europe, I guess. Sure, yeah. <laughs> and I think it began, yeah. and I stumbled across the site a few years ago, and I haven't really looked at it a lot since, even though it was a really good site. I think it began as a, uh, an initiative of the EU. So. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, co-financed by the Connecting Europe facility of the European Union. Yeah, there um, we go. Initiative of the EU, financed by the European Union's Connecting Europe facility and European Union member states. So, yeah, it's uh, put together by the EU. It's kind of like an archive, internet archive, except not supported by a private entity. Right, <laughs> and it's just focused on yeah. European yeah. stuff, basically. I kind of wish we had something like that in the U.S. Uh, I feel like we must. I mean, but outside of like not. the Smithsonian <laughs> sure. institution, um, I don't know. <laughs> Which, I don't think we're going to go over any of them in any depth, but it is worth pointing out that a lot of um, big American museums do have pretty impressive digital collections. For example, uh, MoMA, uh, Museum, oh, yeah. of, Museum of Modern Art, has a huge digital collection where you can see all sorts of stuff that they have 
you know, at their physical locations on the internet um, in really high quality. Granted, modern art, not for everybody, <laughs> but um, still really cool. Uh, and I imagine the same is true of many, many, many art museums and other museums in the U.S. as well. So, Oh, nice. I'll have to check that out. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so another one I wanted to talk about just briefly is the Chapman University Center for American War Letters. This one is pretty great. Um, they just take basically donations uh, of war letters from any war. Um, and uh, they add it to their collection, and the good ones get digitized and put online for everybody to see. The reason I know about this one at all is because we actually had someone ask if we wanted any uh, old war letters here at the Bellevue University archives, which would be cool, but that doesn't really, you know, mesh with our mission very well. So I was kind of searching out to see if there was any other place that um, this person might be able to donate these letters to. And this was the best one that I come across, came across, and sure enough, they did take, uh, did take those letters. Um, oh, nice, so that's good. To good use, yeah. It looks um, like they have letters from every American conflict. Yep. Um, or every conflict that America participated yeah. in, at least. Yeah. So, Revolutionary War, um, all the way up to emails from Iraq and Afghanistan. Yeah, and, that's just it. It's not just handwritten letters. It's also emails and other... Uh, uh, so, even modern digital. correspondence. Yep. Just, it's a really cool idea. Yeah. It's re- and some of them are really fascinating. Like they, they have a little sample letters page... My two favorite examples from that page are uh, a letter or a stack of letters that has a bullet hole going through it, um, and then a letter from an American soldier that was written on Hitler's stationery. And if you zoom in on that letter, it's just amusing to see that at the top where Adolf Hitler is pre-printed, it's been crossed out and underneath that penciled in the soldier's name. <laughs> That's kind of funny. It's great. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's a really cool collection, and I'd like to spend some more time poking around in it. Just one that we wanted to highlight here just because it's something that we've kind of... We have a, a very little... small connection to in some yeah, way. Yeah. So. We've had a little experience with it. Right. So that's uh, that's Chapman Chapman University's uh, collection, the Center for American War Letters. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's very cool, and they are still accepting donations. It's yep. an ongoing project that they're working on. Yeah. Um, so, if you're interested, take a look. If you have something you could donate, uh, mm-hmm. go for it. That's probably all we have time for today. I mean, yeah. there are tons of unique. Uh, unique collections out there. Uh, we didn't even talk about our collection here at Bellevue University. Yeah, we have uh, <laughs> we have the Bellevue University uh, archive. You want to do it? Do a quick plug for it for the Tom Dolly collection. Yeah, yeah. That's probably the most unique collection we have. Uh, we'll throw a link uh, to this in the description or whatever show notes. It's a uh, collection that was donated to us from the family of a student uh, who attended Bellevue University in the '90s. And for one of their homework assignments, they were writing about the history of fast food in America. And um, they were a more intense researcher than I will ever be because where I would turn to like books and databases and stuff, they decided to just contact one of the founders of McDonald's and um, just write them a letter, <laughs> just kind of out of the blue and you know get, get the details straight from the mouth of uh, one of the guys who kind of kick-started the whole thing. Um, and they actually struck up a friendship with one another and remained pen pals for years afterwards. They even met on at least one occasion that I'm aware of, and 
Um, they filmed a video interview with him. This is um, Richard McDonald that I'm talking about, um, one of the two brothers that founded McDonald's. They filmed the video interview with him, which is... Finding video footage of him is pretty rare, actually, so it's pretty neat that we have something like that in our archives. And that video has been digitized, so you can go and watch the whole thing. I know, you had quite a... Uh... Quite a time getting that <laughs> getting video it digitized. digitized. Yeah, that was that was a struggle. <laughs> Wasn't it in like a, a VHS that was kind of falling apart? It or was had unspooled. We had two VHS copies of it, yeah. and they were both in awful condition. Luckily, they were both in awful condition in very different ways. Uh, one of them, the video was awful, but the audio was pretty good. The other one was the complete opposite. So I was able to kind of digitize both of them, take the good elements from each one and then combine them together to try to make kind of a, you know, complete version of it. So go watch it, because it took a lot of time to put together. Um, <laughs> and I, I wanted to get seen. Um, and it, it does directly connect back to Bellevue University as well. If you're listening and you're connected to the Bellevue University in some way, shape, or form, at the end of the video, they do uh, inform McDonald that he would be receiving an honorary doctorate from Bellevue University. Oh, nice. Um, and that was in the video? Yeah, yeah, that's in the video, so check it out. And there's other good stuff in there, too. There's letters that Dolly wrote to uh, McDonald, as well as uh, kind of some manuscripts and articles that Dolly wrote about the history of McDonald's and other fast food restaurants. Yeah, wasn't there, so. like, um, a book or something he was yeah. working on? Yep. Yeah. And it's it's definitely interesting. It's, it's a side of history that uh, a lot of people, I think, aren't aware of, so... Yeah, take a look at that. That's uh, that's a really cool, unique collection that we have here yeah. at Bellevue University. Yeah. All right. Thank okay. you. Yeah. Thanks for listening.